Welcome to the next episode of our podcast on negotiation. And our today get, today's guest, Michael Michael Ruth, is an expert in dispute resolution. Someone who has spent his entire career as a litigation lawyer. Someone who has been very successful in the domain, both professionally as well as uh, academically. Maybe I should reverse the sequence. You were first an academic and then uh, became a professional. And someone who will tell us how to negotiate international commercial uh, contract uh, contracts. Michael, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Michael, how did this whole adventure, how did your whole adventure with negotiation and dispute resolution started? You have, um, uh, you have uh, your, your educational background is in litigation, right? You're a... Uh, yes. an uh, educated lawyer how did uh, you make this how did you make the switch to negotiation well yeah I, um <laughs> out of necessity um and by the way and i, I th thank you for for inviting me on and i, I just want to make sure that i mentioned before i forget that i've had a chance to listen to many of your um previous podcasts and i i, I reckon for anybody who knows me i would recommend them uh, to, to others to go back and listen. There, there, there are some, some fabulous tips that people can pick up and just approaches to um, negotiating. So I, I, I came to negotiation, um, I, not formally, but through a, a need as being an in-house lawyer who had lots of um, disputes, lots of problems to resolve a very high workload. And actually I've prepared some charts. I can kind of walk you through them. I know the people who are just listening, um, they won't be able to see them, but you're not really missing out on that much. So if I can, I'll pull those up. Um, my career internally, I was, a, I was a lawyer in practicing in New York. I spoke Italian, I'd lived in Italy um, earlier in my, after graduating from university and before becoming a lawyer. I worked in New York initially in my first part of my legal career for a New York law firm um, for a number of years. And in 1999, I got hired by General Electric, which had recently acquired a global company called Novo Pignone. Novo Pignone was, um, until 1994, it was owned by and controlled by the Italian government. Um, it didn't have its own independent legal department, and so GE went about um, hiring lawyers um, to put them in place. And I was one of the first people um, that was hired as part of that team. And you can see, I understood really quickly why they hired a litigation lawyer as one of the first members of the team, as we had, they had lots of disputes. Um, it was, I, I, by the time I got around to counting them, which is maybe three or four months after I started there, I was just so busy. Um, about 143 globally, all over the world. Um, some were in the courts, some were in arbitration. But these are cases that were actually filed. They were they were pending somewhere, and it was a, a substantial workload. I was by myself um, as an in-house counsel, and I remember the general counsel of GE asking me at one point, "How do you how do you manage so many of those cases all at once?" And I think I was honest. I said, "I, I don't. I can't. How do you? I, it's it's too many." Um, and um, I was able to find uh, within General Electric a, a document um, that pointed me to a program that GE had implemented with success a few years earlier called Early Dispute Resolution. And Early Dispute Resolution had this focus, as it said, what, what, what GE called informal methods of um, resolving disputes. And it, said, and it said clearly negotiation and mediation. And I knew nothing really about either. I mean, I knew, I thought, like most people, you know, I used to say in these courses I would teach that we have many people who are great 
negotiators here in the company. We have many people who think they are great negotiators, right? Everybody thinks they're a great negotiator. Um, but I really had no background or training in, in either of those. Um, and um, But I went about uh, implementing this program to, to attack these 143 disputes that we had. And keep in mind that the company was very active. It was growing. So it's not like you would close one case and that's it. Um, it would be, you know, you close one case and two more would come up knocking on your doors. GE is now selling all over the world. It's really expanding this business. Um, and so I was, I was very busy. And yet, by, by having this emphasis on early resolution, and we didn't do many mediations, but we did a lot of negotiating. And we were able to reduce the caseload um, in just a couple of years from 143 pending cases to about 25. And by the way, I, I heard Professor Mike Wheeler once speak at a conference and, we're, and he was talking about how for a large company, you know, what is the right number of disputes, you know, litigations? And the number and the answer is it's not zero because zero would mean that you're leaving nothing on the right. You're leaving a lot on the table and you're settling everything. And I, yes. in my case, I would, I would have said 143 was far too many and zero would have been far too few. 25, I think, wound up to be about the right number for the size of the company where we were. And we re and we reduced our, our spend on um, external everything uh, relating to litigation, not just law firms, but arbitrators, court filing fees, and everything else associated with disputes by 50%. Um, so the program actually worked, worked really well. Um, and um, Professor Wheeler at the Harvard Business School actually um, a couple of years later, um, had not, an opportunity to work with him because he did a, uh, well, didn't work with him. I, we collaborated on a, on a case study that he did about the implementation of this um, early dispute resolution program within General Electric. So th that was how I, I, I think I got thrown, it was, let's say, a baptism by fire, not really knowing well what I was doing, but having to learn as, as, I, as I went which then led me to thinking about, well, I, I really ought to be acquiring skills here, not, not just for myself, but for others in the company as well. And this led, and, and in particular, you know, <laughs> where I really needed to be applying the efforts was in making sure that the disputes didn't become pending cases, right? To finding ways to prevent them, to avoid them, but in a good way so the company would get good results, but didn't have to expend unnecessary resources in court or in, or in arbitration. Right. And um, so that, that, that's what I think led me to, you know, how can we develop mediation and make it part of the DNA of, of the company. And, you know, the, the initial work that, that I did there, and I was fortunate at that time, there, there was this, this organization in Italy called the ADR Center, which was founded by two people I think you may know, Giuseppe De Paolo and Leonardo D'Urso, who were they, were, they, they were fresh out with their new business trying to propose mediation way before anybody in Italy had heard of what mediation was. I had just discovered mediation and we connected and, and, um, and they said, well, we know, you know, we do know a lot about negotiation. They, they came in and, and, and I began helping us develop our first negotiation trainings. And I was able to identify, it wasn't very difficult to see, you know, where are the touch points? Where are these disputes being created? And, you know, and for a company, this company, GE Oil and Gas, which became GE Oil and Gas, Noble Pignone, 
Um, this, these were major energy products. They were projects. They were energy plants. They were liquid natural gas installations. But these were big, big financially intensive refineries. Um, it, you know, capital intensive and technology intensive projects. And the the people who were, I would say, the had the manipulated the levers that would lead to disputes or avoid disputes were project manage project managers, PMs. You would call them project managers, um, and it became clear that if we could influence or, or provide them with the skills to negotiate better, that perhaps you know they would have, they would themselves would be able to um, resolve disputes successfully, so that it wouldn't come to me. And so, really, this was all about making my job easier. <laughs> so did, did a lot of work. We we brought in um, you know and, uh, the ADRs with with um, Leonardo and and Giuseppe who did some fabulous work uh, helping to train people. Um, we, we brought in Professor Richard Schell from the Wharton School of Business. Uh, we, we also brought in Michael, Professor Michael Wheeler from the Harvard Business School. I mean, we, we really invested in bringing in some great talent um, to help us to, to teach um, this community that we had. And of course, we, you know, my community of the, the project managers uh, was what I was targeting, but of course, then the salespeople would hear. So I hear there's a great negotiation course being taught for the project managers. And they would always try to sneak into our courses, and we didn't we didn't kick them out. Um, it, you know, it was it was something that was really requested once we began to to do this within the company. Um, and then eventually, but not long after this, it, it essentially became institution institutionalized within across the company. Um, we we. Um, um, latched on to an initiative um, that GE had created within this business called the Project Management Academy, PM Academy, which had a series of trainings that were required for all project managers. Um, some of this was engineering, some of it was related to um, anti-corruption, things that project managers need to be aware of if you're working in difficult places around the world. Some of it related to financial matters, the project manager, project managers are like often mini CEOs, they kind of run their own business. Um, and, um, and, and there was a, a negotiation training path that was part of it. And we, um, when we trained um, thousands of project managers over the years, on um, in various forms of, of negotiation skills. And we, we broke that out into three different levels of negotiation training that the project managers were required to go through. One was level one, which is what we called it uh, negotiation fundamentals. That was our level one course, it was a full day. We, we ideally, and the criticism and the feedback we always got was that um, people wanted it to be two days, not one day, but in a big company, it's hard to get people together to do. A lot of people fly in for these courses. This is pre-pandemic, pre-world of virtual, and you know, getting a, you know, 20, 30 people into a room, right. you're taking away a lot of their time from the business. And so, you know, but it was nice to get criticism that everybody would say that we, you know, this class needs to be two or three days and so we've got to keep it to one. And, um, and, and that I think was almost like a core competency of the project managers, uh, a, a core skill that they would apply. And the idea where we even had project managers who would come in that would come back and teach the course. Again, trying to make this as part of the of the DNA of the of the project management organization. Um, we then had a level two, and this is where I think things got really interesting and really beneficial to the company. But level two trainings are what well, we, we never thought of a good 
word for them. We call them legal negotiation, or but that wasn't really what it was. Um, we just did, you know, not not very creative with respect to titles. Um, but the the level two trainings were targeted on those specific areas of potential conflict or um, value loss that you would encounter in major projects. And I, I give you one example, which would be a legal concept called liquidated damages. Liquidated damages are what they sound like. It's a penalty for breaching some term of the contract. And it means that usually it's for delay, but it can also be for things like performance. It can be related to um, uh, whether you not met a criteria to provide documents that you're supposed to provide. There's some requirement of the contract that you've not met. And therefore, I say, oh, Walter Romano's here. Oh, that's great. I was just about that. to say this. We're getting some comments from your um, uh, from your former colleagues who attended these courses live in our chat. So um, yes, I'll be I'll be <clears throat> I'll be displaying right. them as they as they pop up. And guys, uh, if you're listening, if you're watching or listening us, uh, uh, please let us know um, if you have any questions to Mike. Uh, we'll gladly uh, we'll gladly address them. Uh, not only the questions that come from chat GPT, which I also prepared, by the way, uh, but also yeah. those uh, that come from the audience. So thank you so much. Uh, um, by the Mike, way, there uh, are other projects, there are other managers listening here, other business people. Like Walter has his, has his, now has his own activity in business, actually written a book, I mean, on leadership and does uh, terrific work in the area of, um, so you know, like, like Walter's profile on LinkedIn, Walter Romano, he's you know, terrific, terrific for those of you who come from the, the technical and business community. Um, anyway, as I was saying, the, the oh, this would be change orders, not change your orders on the chart. Uh, I teach legal writing. I think I'd get the typos right. Um, the, but the, the liquidated damages are a, a quantified amount that you will pay if you breach a specific part of the contract. And it's very common to put this into lots of different contracts. Um, because sellers want to know if I breach, what are the damages that I have to pay? It's predictable. And buyers want to know if I, if the seller breaches, I can, I don't have to go out to court and quantify everything. I know exactly from the contract what I'm going to collect in the event of a breach. Um, but in big contracts, liquidated damages can amount to hundreds of thousands, if not often millions and tens of millions of, of dollars. And one of the things I think that people who don't come from, from a, let's say, international legal background may not realize is that there are lots of arguments as to why liquidated damages may or may not be due. And it's something that you don't necessarily have to pay. If you say, if you're the party that's the paying the party, you may very well have a good reason to negotiate the um, liquidated damage. And so we built a course around this very frequent issue that, that uh, I have to say, this is to the credit of Novo Pignone and to the credit of GE Oil and Gas at the time, one of the biggest problems that the company had is that it was often late with its deliveries. The reason it was late is because it was so successful, the factory was full, they had a backlog and they were often having to choose, you know, well, which, which you know, order am I going to prioritize? Um, and sometimes there'd be events of force majeure, there, you know, ships would get delayed and there would be things that were beyond the company's control that would, that would cause delays. Um, so it was very topical. And, and so we had this course on liquidated damages. And the other types of courses would be change orders where you modify or amend a contract. But, you know, usually contracts have a, have a process spelled out for how they do that. But even if they don't, that's something that can be negotiated. You may want to negotiate additional time. You may want to negotiate 
um, additional money. You may want to negotiate both. Um, you know, the customer may want to negotiate, you know, I, I want something changed. If you're building a house, you would say, look, I changed my mind. You know, I, I, I want to have um, three meter windows instead of two meter windows. You know, and the contractor may say, yeah, but we already, you know, but the, the masons have left, the electricians are there, the plumbers are now working, we're about to start painting and now you want to change, I'm gonna to have to rip out, the, you know, and you say, well, look, I, I saw down at the local shop down here that, that the um, that three meter windows only cost, I don't know, a thousand dollars. Why can't you, why, why are you asking me $10,000 to put the windows in? And the contractor will have to explain, well, because I got to bring back the masons, bring back the electricians, et cetera. I mean, it, these are all things that that are that I think are, are negotiated um, and, and they, you know, they, they're complex and it's good to have the skill for when you negotiate that and, and other things that are similar. So that was the level two. And then our level three course, our level three was um, master courses for very senior project managers, the people experiencing and the ones that we wanted to make to bring back into their um, community and into the, to their to their organizations. Um, we had, you know, like the folks I named earlier, people like, you know, Professor Richard Schell from the Wharton School, um, and of course, Mike, Professor Mike Wheeler from, from, from Harvard, who uh, were very generous in coming over um, both to Italy and, and other parts of the world um, where we could get large groups of project managers together. Anyway, long, very long-winded way to say that's how I came to um, the world of negotiation. <laughs> But to, to summarize it, right, you went from a huge workload into inspiring many colleagues, uh, some of whom are still with us and are very happy with uh, the interactions that they've had with you. Uh, so another comment, uh, you are an um, undisputed authority and uh, that's why you're here. That's why we're asking our questions. So as an undisputed authority in conflict uh, resolution domain, Mike, uh, you've uh, You've, I'm sure you've resolved so many disputes, right? Uh, what is the most memorable dispute that you've ever encountered, resolved, or maybe you, maybe it wasn't resolved, uh, maybe it was, maybe it was left unresolved. But what is the one that you uh, that you recall when we when you think about the most memorable experience from dispute resolution? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the one the one that sticks in my mind is a. Um, is one that didn't resolve. And this was early in my career. Um, and I had just come to Novo Pignone and I just started on this GE EDR, this early dispute resolution program. And I had this wonderful outside counsel, a professor here in Florence, Professor Vicuriti, who just passed away last year. And we had a dispute in the Italian courts with a company um, from Southern Italy, from Bari, that had, that had built cabins for a big project that the company was working on in Russia. And um, they had put in a claim for, I think, what in today's, well, what the, then at the time would have been, this is back in the age of Lira, uh, but in euros would have been about 5 million euros. So it was a big amount to them. It was, it was, it was a family-run company in Bari, a family-held business. And we, of course, are large multinational, and, but, but I was trying to settle these disputes. Um, And um, the interesting thing about this case is it was fully reserved on the company's books. In other words, we accepted that it was a probability that we might lose or that it was more likely that we would lose, but not that we would necessarily lose, but the probability was estimated before I became involved. Um, and what that means in um, in-house counsel terms is that anything that I could settle the case for that was less than the full amount was all upside for the company. Right. So that was one a case that I that I prioritized to try to settle, um, and I um, remember 
um, Professor Vigoriti helping me organize a trip and we made our trips to various different um, um, places with, with other disputants. And we met with the, um, the opposing council and the, the, um, the, the, the owner of the, one of the main owners of the company that was suing us. And we said, we would like to sit down. And, and I said, there are some elements of your claim that we don't really understand. There were things that were legitimate. There, there were some procedural defects in their case. And there were some substantive defenses that we had that we were in the process of building and actually looked pretty good to me. I think that we could maybe turn this around and we might be able to case this is the litigation side of me right <laughs> i think that we there's there's there hey, you know if we don't settle this case you know maybe we're not going to lose it you know there, we could do there's there's more here that we could do um and um it was a very difficult conversation at the law firm and remember this in bari in southern italy and um the lawyer for the other side was almost um I don't want to say skeptical, I think I'm skeptical about, and I proposed, well, I said, well, well, what about if we had a mediation where we can all sit down together? He said, well, I don't know what mediation is. And I said, well, mediation is where we would be guided by a third party who would help us kind of understand these issues and facilitate potentially a settlement. And he looked at me and um, basically threw us out of his office saying that we already have a, a, a neutral third party. It's called the judge. And we're happy to wait for the judge to decide this case. This was in 1999. I think the case was filed in 1997. Um, I left the company that then became Baker Hughes in 2021, um, March of 2021. I think that that case finally got resolved through the courts maybe three or four years before I left. So maybe 2015, 2016. I say this because... Um, by the time we, I was prepared to pay a sizable amount of, of that claim. I mean, I just needed the elements to help me understand and, and make an offer, right? Um, and the, the um, so, so when they, and they eventually, I think they eventually did win the case, but I think they won a, a relatively small amount. It was much smaller than the amount they were claiming. claiming. Um, there was nobody there to collect it. The, the, the company had gone into liquidation, like I know liquidation years and years before. It was the, it was the liquidators who was being held up. Well, they only had one asset, which was this, this claim against Novo Pignone. Um, they kept the company standing. The lawyer had passed away long before the one who sent so. And the owners of the company had all passed away. So I have no idea who it was who ultimately collected. It was a few hundred thousand euros, I think, that they ultimately were able to collect. And I, you know, I, I look at that as, as a really as a lose-lose sort of situation. And I, and I think that that kind of shaped a lot of my thinking. And, you know, I probably needed better skills. Um, I, I kind of looked at that as a, as a failure overall. You know, is it, I didn't communicate well. I don't know how I presented it. Um, so that, that was one that was really memorable. I, it certainly burned its, its way. I can give you lots of them. I had great experiences in mediation, wonderful. But, but I think that was one that really shaped me early, in, early on. So, Mike, if we look at this one and many other um, disputes that you've managed to resolve in uh, while um, uh, while uh, acting as a litigation uh, litigation lawyer, uh, corporate litigation lawyer, um, what are the most common what are the most common issues that arise uh, that individuals and companies have in, uh, in in this context? So here it seems to me that in the last one, in the last one, it was uh, more or less ego, right? Uh, Inability to um, uh, inability to say 
hey, let's look at it from a different perspective. Let's involve someone from outside. What are the other substantive or maybe relational or maybe outside uh, issues, uh, aspects from outside of the negotiation context that, uh, that play an important role in that case? It, well, in this case, or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in general, in general, um, well, you know, relationship issues often come up in, you know, but that's part of, I mean, I think you factor those in and I think any, you know, smart business person will, of course, be mindful if there is a relationship issue, if there are cultural issues that might arise. Um, and one of the advantages of working in an international company is you have access to people who are familiar with the cultures around the world um, and the people who they're dealing with on the other side. Um, and who are often from those cultures, so they can help guide you on, on that. I think if we look at, and we should talk, I hope we can talk about negotiating, otherwise it becomes bait and switch, that so we'll talk about negotiating international commercial contracts. I appreciate we spent some time on my, my background. Um, but I think that one of the things that often goes awry and leads from, let's say, a good commercial relationship into a dispute is that one or both parties um, I think something happens which, which was not expected at the time that they, that, they, that they signed the contract. And then one or both of the parties does not have a clear objective. They don't have a clear idea of what it is that they would accept. Um, and I see this sort of, I think this is an important thing that is often overlooked. Um, and that's why I think mediation is often a powerful tool because it can help, you know, one or both sides understand what they should reasonably try, you know, want to have. From, from the relationship or from, from the thing that they're dealing with. We got another question from our audience. Um, how do you manage intractable parties um, from your experience, Mike? What do you think? Well, intractable parties, I mean, first of all, are they intractable? <laughs> I mean, um, this, this is one, by the way, and I, and I recommend the book um, that William Urey has written, um, Getting Past No, which it's a very easy book to read. You can read it in about an hour, hour and a half. And he lays out six strategies for dealing with um, difficult people. Um, but, but one is, you know, are they, you know, are, are they, are they really, you know, you know, it could be issues of communication. I mean, you have to look every single case on its, on its own merits and try to figure out why are they being intractable? Um, you know, As, as some of these other po podcasts, by the way, in, in this series have pointed out, sometimes negotiation is not the solution. Sometimes it's not a panacea, and sometimes you can't get the solution. <laughs> But I think, you know, one of the, you know, by the way, one of the things when we used to talk about in the courses was the difference between positive and, and negative negotiation zones and make sure that everybody understood, you know, am I in a positive negotiation zone? Is it actually, is it, you know, to this question, is it possible for me to reach And a, you know, and a, an agreed outcome here, because if it's not possible, I'm just wasting my time, right? You know, and if I can this thing, is there something else where it might be positive that we can reach an agreement on? For example, maybe we're not going to reach an agreement on the particular dispute we're dealing with, but maybe we can reach an agreement. I don't know. So we're talking about delivering a thing, but maybe we can uh, negotiate over the servicing of the thing down the road. And that can help us reach agreement later on, or maybe if we do or we don't. Um, but it may be a way to help you get beyond. I mean, look for those. I mean, look for those positive zones of negotiation where you can reach agreement. Right. Uh, and um, <clears throat> let's have a look at the book that you uh, that you wrote on negotiating international commercial uh, commercial contracts a little bit closer. So, um, uh, two questions. Um, um, 
How did it all start in terms of what brought you to, uh, to an idea of writing a book about it? And uh, what is the book all about? Okay. So, so the, um, uh, again, not to trumpet so much your prior um, podcast, but I think some of your previous guests have talked about the importance of expertise. Um, and, you know, it, it is, um, there's, not, there's no substitute for knowing what your, um, what your domain expert, you know, being a domain expert. Um, so if you are somebody who works in real estate, you should understand, obviously, real estate. If you work in my former industry dealing, you know, liquid natural gas installations, you should know a lot about liquid natural gas installations, and the machinery, and the components that make part of that. If you're working in banking and finance, et cetera. Um, most people have this domain expertise in a particular area. And this is true also of lawyers. I mean, lawyers, of course, are domain experts in the law. But we, right. we learn our law and our procedures and our practices of our, of our home to where we are trained. Um, when we uh, engage in international um, commercial negotiations, we are very often being presented with either a request or an opportunity to go outside of our area of training and expertise. Um, and, and that is where I've seen time and again, people often make suboptimal choices because they prefer to go with what is familiar to them as opposed to going with what would be best for them or the party that they represent. Um, and so this was really the inspiration behind um, this book of, it's an exercise book. I'd say it's, you could call it a coloring book. I thought you could call it a coloring book, but people would find that maybe a little bit, um, uh, you know, I wanted to really illustrate. This is just a practice. This is just sit down, get your hands dirty and practice dealing with the types of problems that you would face when you take your expertise out of your domestic area and you engage in an international um, contract. And my, my co-author is Gustavo Moser, who at the time was a um, senior case uh, manager at the London Court of International Arbitration and has certainly seen from another side, another point of view, um, many commercial contracts that um, did not work out for one way or the other. Anyway, a lot of a lot of a lot of disputes, a lot of disputes that arise because of imperfect negotiations, because the parties um, perhaps don't completely understand the impact of working internationally. Um, and often they will accept a, a compromise position, which is neither here nor there. And so the, the idea was, well, if you give people exercises, they can practice this when they find themselves in a real situation, um, then they can, um, they, they will be more confident. That's a perfect moment to blend in Alexander's comment, uh, who says that, uh, uh, that uh, negotiation and handling these cases is something that we can learn. It's a skill. Right. And uh, which indeed calls for um, for an approach that you chose in your book, meaning the more we practice, the more automate, uh, automated our responses to certain uh, certain uh, real life situations become. Right. We make uh, we make connections between premise, conclusion. Uh, right. Or um, 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 problem solution. Right. Uh, uh, so and that's uh, that's pretty much uh, pretty much goes in that direction. Right. It's something that we can learn. 
Absolutely. And, and to, even to Alexander's point, I think that there are uh, very particular skills that one would benefit from having, which is that um, in, the, in the common law jurisdiction, we are accustomed to, in the tradition, to what's called attorney privilege, where um, any communications or settlement discussions are treated as confidential. That's not a given in many other parts of the world. And so I think Alexander is absolutely right to highlight the point that you have an ongoing litigation. You certainly want to make sure that you're talking you know, to somebody who has the right skills in, um, in the exchange of information, usually a lawyer who would be in the relevant jurisdiction who could advise on, on that. Or, or what you do is you, you, you know, and I hope that Alexander would agree, you just treat any communications you have with, the, with anyone as non-confidential. <laughs> So make sure anything you send, make sure anything you send, you're comfortable that, well, if this gets out, then I'm okay with this getting out. So, Mike, uh, you've been active in the field of dispute resolution or um, uh, commercial contract, international uh, inter negotiating uh, international contracts or resolving disputes resulting out of those contracts. Uh, um, and I was wondering, you know, if you look back at, uh, at the decades of your experience, at the negotiating table in that particular context. Yeah? Um, what has changed over those years and what remained the same? So what's changed over the years? Oh, look, I mean, things have changed. Well, lots have changed. One, I think that is a macro change is that you see the acceptance of mediation all over the world today. When I began in 1999, I mean, outside of a few select jurisdictions, the UK, the United States, maybe a few others, Australia, um, mediation was virtually unknown. Maybe Norway, I think, had was 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 ahead. Um, today, it it it, it is um, it, it's it's practiced everywhere for different reasons. I mean, you know, in the United States, you know, mediation is a way for parties to negotiate their way out of a dispute. And avoid the you know the high uncertainties, but also the high costs of, of litigation. Yes. The same in, in the UK, um, in Italy, and other countries. My 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 colleague um, Chiara Tondini has actually written uh, you know a, a very fascinating article about how Italy and Georgia, um, two different countries, have introduced mediation laws and introduced mediation in different ways, with a different purpose, which was is 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 uh, litigation is not as expensive in those in either Italy or Georgia. It's being introduced or has been introduced with the idea of reducing um, court backlogs. And this is true of many civil law jurisdictions, which gives rise to different dynamics, but coming at the same, you know, different problems with a similar solution, which is mediation. So that I think is, in, which requires, and mediation requires negotiation skills. I mean, mediation is, is a form of negotiation. Um, I think that other forms of dispute relations, I think arbitration is always, you know, very accepted, increasingly accepted. I think arbitration has changed dramatically. I think today it is much more focused on the parties, the users, less on the, the arbitrators themselves. It's become, you know, more, it's, it's, I think it's perceived more now as a service, which was what it was intended to be. I think there's, that's my perception. That there's been this evolution in that, in that way. Um, and I think that I, I'll tell you one thing that has not changed. And this, I actually, and I wrote a short article about this, um, and it was published in Mediate.com, which I don't think that, that negotiation has um, evolved in its, uh, its accessibility to, um, to not, to, to, let's say, to the, to the, to the, um, the uninitiative, the uninitiated. Um, I think that, that people still today who 
want to learn more about negotiation for their situation, have the same sorts of texts that they go to, whether it's getting to yes. Well, there are lots of good books. I'm not criticizing these. I'm just saying that there's, it's, 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 it, there's nothing that has made it easy for um, parties to go out and find what is the right type of negotiation training for me and what would work for my situations that I, that I face. You know, it's all, it's more than, it's kind of, this is one size fits all for, this is a, this is an approach. This is what you apply to everything. And I think, I think that's something that I would hope will change, you know? So anyway. Michael, um, we know that probably um, uh, on all our walls on LinkedIn and other social media and the news uh, um, um, in the last, last at least um, month or maybe month and a half, maybe two months, um, have been full of different um, uh, different messages on ChatGPT. And I also asked ChatGPT to come up with a smart question to Michael McGilbert. And here's what ChatGPT uh, responded. It told me to ask you about what is the most effective approach to negotiating international commercial contracts and why? Yeah. It sounds, I was, first of all, when I read this question, I thought, wow, right? It profiled you in almost in the almost correct domain, not quite, but very close. Yeah. So Michael, uh, you're welcome to comment on chat GPT technology or answer this question, whichever you prefer. Well, okay. Um, so I think, let me just speak now to chat GPT. Chat GPT, you're, you're, you're a bit lazy. Um, I think that you, um, looked at perhaps one of the most recent things that I've done, which is an exercise book on negotiating international commercial contracts. Um, the the um, I, I think if you really looked into me, you'd see I'm probably more known for dispute resolution. But hey, you know I, I, I give you I give you a passing grade. You got part of it, so okay. Um, the the most important thing I think um, is I, I don't I don't view negotiation as as the game. Um, I don't think that it's, I think it is, it's a way of, you know, it's a way of communicating, of structuring things, of providing a framework. I think the most important thing in any negotiation um, in preparing for international commercial negotiations is, um, is expertise. Your, your, the preparation, the, and then you'll be seeing that the preparation that you put in, but the, the expertise that you bring to a negotiation and the preparation that you put into it. Um, I, you know, there's some people here who will remember this, <laughs> or I can see, or who are who are listeners here that I I was very adamant that I would never attend a negotiation or a mediation with one of our teams unless we spent time in advance to come up with what I call the three numbers. The three numbers are we. What's our goal? And again, the goal can include relationship issues. It can include um, lots of other um, things, not, not just a financial number, but what, what's your goal or your goals? What is it you want to, what does we want to achieve? And then so if we knew our goal, um, then we would be able to formulate the second number, which is what would be our opening number or our counter offer. You know, we would discuss reasons, you know, the advantages of being the first to make an offer or being able to be confident when we make a, a counter offer, because we knew the reasons why we were putting that number forward. And then the third uh, number 
was the fallback or, you know, what you would, uh, people in the negotiation will call the baton of the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Some people might call it, call it a bottom line, but, you know, I would try to remind people that, you know, we are, you know, as a company, you know, we don't negotiate to our bottom line. We negotiate with our, our goal in mind and we want to get our objective, but we also don't want to be stupid. And if there's a number that is, you know, would be better, you know, to accept and not accept, let's not be stupid. Let's think about what that, what that number is. Getting those three numbers in, in, a, in a company um, typically would take a day. I mean, for any dispute of, when I mean of any size, whether it's 500,000, a million dollars, but you know, when you get start getting into real money and certainly much larger numbers, the reason it would take a day or at least half a day, even for matters that people knew very well was because you had to think through the, the various options. How's this likely to pan out? Um, what is, what's a range of potential outcomes? What are the costs going to be? What's the impact on potential re relationships or customer reputation? Um, you have to get other people on board with this. Once you decide that, well, we might accept an offer that's less than 100%, well, you have to make sure that you're authorized. You may have to convince you know, other stakeholders within the organization and make sure that you're authorized to, to, to do that. So those three numbers are are I think the most important that you have to build any strategy. And I don't think you should go to a negotiation, any negotiation, unless you're, you're able to articulate all three of them to yourself. Now, you, I, I hope that people have the flexibility to, to learn, to adapt and to change them, but you should be pretty confident that, you know, when you go to a negotiation, I know what my objective is. I know what my opening offer, counter offer would be. And I, and I know what sort of fallback position you know, or bottom line I may have if, um, if I can't get to my optimal number. And I'm, I'm going to try not to be dragged to my bottom line, but I, but I, I want to know what it is. Yes, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. That, so that, now, would be, uh, that would be my, my, my advice in every negotiation. <laughs> in every negotiation. Those, yeah, but to get those, you need the expertise, right? You need to make sure you have people, you, that you are informed or you're bringing people who are informed. Um, and so we go to negotiating international commercial contracts. You bring to a, to a you're not coming to an international negotiation without having negotiated a contract before, right? You you have that expertise. You should feel you know bring bring your confidence with you because you you're the domain expert in that type of contract, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So let's now fantasize a little bit. Right. Let's uh, uh, from the let's move away from the retrospective, right, of your rich uh, and successful career, and try to um, try to paint uh, paint the visions of the future. Yeah. So, um, do you think? What do you think about the role in, of technology in uh, uh, in the future at the negotiating table, uh, be it negotiating commercial contracts or resolving disputes, things like Chat GPT, artificial intelligence, and beyond? Do you think it has a a legitimate place at the at the table or you know besides the table right or do you think it's all it's it's a people's business at the end of the day no you, you and i are aligned up. we had this conversation before i mean it's like you and i both i think see the same thing it's, it's a tool like any other tool and it will be used and we should be embracing it now and facing into it i i teach a, a legal writing course which, which has a negotiation component as a as a as a, as a part of it um, I, I plan to use. I'm gonna. I'm gonna incorporate it into my class next year. I'm gonna. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna require. Not, not am I gonna say, not prohibit students from using Chat Chat GPT. I'm gonna require them to use Chat GPT 
as in at least some of their assignments, um, because I think it's it's a tool. R Richard Susskind, who's uh, is an inspiration in the area of technology and dispute resolution, and I highly recommend his books to anyone who, who's interested. He's a real he's, he's a genuine futurist when it comes. He's the technology advisor to the Chief Justice of England and Wales. Has written a number of books on the future of the law, the future of the courts, online justice. Um, he um, is fond of pointing out and that is the way that we will be resolving disputes, which I would say is probably also true of negotiating contracts. The way that we will be doing it in 10 years will be based on technology that is, that is not yet been invented. And, and we just need to get used to that. You know, it's, and, and, and the, those of us who can adapt and incorporate it into what we do will have one leg up. I, I, you know, it's funny. I have a, I have a, a friend, one of my former action team members, Chris Campbell who has a podcast. Um, called Tales of the Tribunal. It's about international arbitration. And I mentioned this because I was talking to him the other day and um, he uses chat GPT to help him do his weekly um, updates of international arbitration law. He says, it usually it used to take him four hours to prepare the script that he reads. He says, he now has chat GPT do it and he has it reduced it to bullet points and he goes through and cleans it up. He says, it, it reduced his time to a half an hour. You know, so... And, and he's as first to say it's not perfect, you know. He says, but I, I'm the, I'm the, the person responsible if I clean it up. So I, I think you know, we're we're bound to start adopting it sooner or later. Yeah. Yes. So next week I'm speaking you, with uh, you. <laughs> you next week I, Michael. Next week, next week I'm speaking with uh, Moshe Cohen about his new book. It's called Collie Wobbles. I mean, not so new. It's uh, it was published two years ago about stress associated with uh, negotiation and how to overcome it. And uh, I'll be more daring with ChatGPT. I'll ask ChatGPT to prepare all my questions, <laughs> and I'll just edit them. <laughs> no, just kidding. Yes, but yes, uh, technology is definitely uh, is definitely uh, uh, definitely here to stay. Uh, last question, Michael. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Uh, my last question is always the same. I force my guests uh, to uh, to share the most uh, um, the, 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 the share their thoughts on great negotiators, mediators uh, that they have encountered, found out about, read about, uh, uh, be it contemporary or historical. Uh, who comes to your mind, Michael? Any anyone in particular? Well, you know, I. I... So, so let me say this, I, I've, I've, you know, as, as being an in-house lawyer responsible for the things that I managed, I, I've, I've had the opportunity to see some truly great negotiators. I mean, people who had just a tremendous um, depth of expertise and experience, and, and they were able to put that into action. And I've also been able to see mediators who are and I think some of the world's finest mediators who are people who see some great negotiators, you know, they, and a mediator observes the negotiators at, at the table. And what I think that I would like to pass on to your listeners and, and viewers is um, what I've come to realize are really the, the two types that exist. I think this may be true of negotiators as well as mediators. By the way, you, you, there are often, there are all these jokes about there are two types of people, you know, like the, the one about there, you know, there are two types of people. The first type is the one, are the ones who can extrapolate, extrapolate from incomplete data. The joke ends there. <laughs> um, but I think that, but I do think that there are two types of, of mediators 
and I believe negotiators. And I think the, the one type are those who are a one size fits all. They bring, they bring their approach to every situation in which they find themselves, whether it's a contract negotiation or it's a uh, dispute they're trying to, to, to resolve or a, a, a case that they're trying to mediate. Um, the other are the ones that, to use the English word, are the bespoke mediators or negotiators, the ones who I have seen who really invest the time to figure out what are the things here that matter, um, what are the points and the people and the strategies to get to good outcomes here. Um, I think there are advantages to both approaches, taking mediation as an example. If you um, do lots of mediations and you, you know, the lawyers want to say, I'm recommending Remy as a mediator because he does all his mediations a certain way. He gives the parties a form to fill out. You fill this out. He asks them to exchange documents, you know, 10 days before the mediation. And you, you know, he has all this laid out and that's exactly how he's going to do it. There are a lot of lawyers who, who like that. Um, but I've found that for particularly difficult, complex um, cases, that the, the bespoke or Americans, we say customized, the mediators who, who do things that to fit that particular situation are those who can get results even from what we would consider impossible situations. And I've seen impossible cases get resolved where you've had a mediator who or, or negotiators who, who dove, dove into it. I and mean, we had the question about you know, the intractable party well, they're intractable disputes. They're intractable until someone comes along and figures out how to make them not intractable. And, and, and it's harder to get there in when you're doing the one size fits all because you just don't see certain things, right? You just miss stuff. And um, so the really hard cases, I think, are just maybe think outside of the way that you, you know, it's the kind of the theme of the book is like, how do you do things outside your area of what, what makes you comfortable? Um, and try to look at everything that might get you there. I'd say it's true of negotiators and for mediators. Thank you so much, uh, Michael, for sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience. Uh, uh, for those of you guys out there who would like to find out more, um, uh, you will find much more information about Michael and his approach on his website. Uh, go to uh, mdisputes, I think, .com, if I remember correctly, mdisputes. Yeah, mdisputes.com, and can I, can we close, and I hate to ask this, can I do one problem from the book just for those who, people who are patient Please enough do. right along? Please do, yes. I would like to just give an example of, of getting people outside of their, of their um, comfort zones. Um, and here is, here is one, just a quick example. Um, so let me, slides, I'll go to, here we are. Is it up? Um, not yet, but uh, which one is it? There. Is it this one? No. Here we go. So here's a situation we have where very simple international contract. Um, and we're going to talk about be, you know, getting what is comfortable, negotiating to get something that feels comfortable to you versus negotiating to get something that is, um, that is maybe is more optimal for you or the party that you represent. And in, in this case, you know, we've, um, we've got a um, international sales contract. The seller and her lawyer are from New York. The buyer and his lawyer are from Singapore. 
So the again, seller, the goods are coming from New York, they're going to Singapore. And we have just a multiple choice here is that which of the following is the New York lawyer most likely to choose and which is better to protect her client's rights to be paid for the goods. Like, mind you, she really, these are, this is a sale of goods. So probably the, the only important thing for the seller here is to make sure they get paid, right? So yes. buyers from New York. And so the options that we have here are A, silence in the contract on the form for resolving disputes. B, um, New York law and courts of New York to decide disputes. C is English law and arbitration in London in the event of a dispute. And D is Singapore law and Singapore courts to decide any disputes. So if we ask this from the point of view of the New York lawyer, we would say, which one do you think that she would be most likely to choose? That's a, that's a question to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just jump, jump down. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a New York lawyer here. She's cut, so we, we could, we could probably guess that she would most likely choose New York law. In the probably. New York. Yes. Yeah. Because yes. so that's what, and that's, and that's the, that's the way most international contracts um, are, wind up, I think, being negotiated, right? With a right. lawyer imposing, one just being stronger, you know, I'm the, I'm the buyer or I'm the seller, I have more leverage here, so I'm gonna um, get my law and my courts. But let's think of, we just said, what is the most important thing? It's getting paid, right? So which might be better to protect her client's right to be paid? The seller's in Singapore, right? If, you, if you're gonna collect from them, you have to at some, and they're not, you can win an arbitration, but if they don't pay it, the arbitration award, you can, option C, you can go to English law and arbitration in London. And of course, an award in London is enforceable in Singapore. But if they don't pay the arbitration award, you still have to sue them in Singapore. So in Singapore courts have good, they have good courts, right? So it actually, this is a case where maybe choosing the buyer's law in the courts would be the better option. And that's a hard thing for lawyers or anybody to, to maybe wrap their head around is that sometimes, you know, the, the best solution is the thing that's the opposite of what I'm most familiar with. And I thought I'd leave you with that. Just one of the, to kind of get people thinking about how to, you know, perhaps frame, you know, their, their, their international negotiations as going beyond what is comfortable to them. The, this and many other exercises uh, you guys can access uh, you, you guys can um, uh, can gain access to in uh, Michael's book in negotiating international commercial contracts and yes uh, further information on how uh, on Michael's approach and his colleagues approach to resolving international disputes you guys will find on mdisputes.com uh, Chiara thank you so much for your uh, for your help thank you so much for being with us And Michael, obviously, also to you. Thank you so much for Thank sharing you. your you. your knowledge, your experience. I greatly enjoyed it. I love your sense of humor. It was uh, it was a very healthy dose. Uh, I thought, uh, you know, I was uh, slowly doubting uh, doubting that lawyers can be as uh, as charming and funny as you can. So uh, thank you for restoring my faith in, uh, in 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 lawyers. So thank you so much, Michael. Thank you to our listeners and viewers. And until next time on the podcast on negotiation. Hey, and there is a there is a happy guy next to you. Okay, so take okay. care. My dog. All right. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you guys. You. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you.